ask you that we can come before you in prayer. We just ask, Lord, now that as we study your word, you'd speak to our hearts, remind us of your mighty power. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Elijah the Tishbite. Sounds like some type of dental thing. You know, a person's got an overbite or an underbite. And Elijah, he had some type of a Tishbite. I think the name of the city that it's believed, and again, too, this is just somewhat speculation on the part of commentators, that Elijah was from the city of Tishbe. The only problem is we don't have any record of it, at least in the scripture of Tishbe. And actually, because of that, it's also believed, and I don't buy this because, again, too, for me, it's not consistent with what we see with regards to Elijah, especially since his name incorporates the name of Jehovah at the end there. I think his name means lover of God. So again, I, I don't necessarily buy this, but because it's believed that he's from Tishbe, there have been some commentators that have speculated he may not even be Jewish. But again, too, I don't buy this because again, what we see with the prophet Elijah is he is probably, apart from Moses, he is probably recognized as the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. The other thing that we see is in the New Testament, remember when Jesus takes three of his disciples up upon the mountain, he's transfigured before them, he is there conversing with two prophets. One is Moses and the other is Elijah as well. Also at the end of the Old Testament, there is a prophecy in Malachi that speaks of the prophet Elijah coming before the Messiah would come and that he would prepare the way for the Lord. Matter of fact, this somewhat was something that the, the rabbis were looking for in confirmation, you know, that the Messiah would come. And that's why when Jesus began to perform his miracles, began to do things, and he was recognized by the crowds and the multitudes and by his disciples as being the Messiah, his disciples specifically asked him, well, you know, how come, and they probably weren't as familiar with the scripture, but they said, how come do the scribes say that Elijah has to come before the Messiah comes? Because I think what they're saying to Jesus is, we clearly believe you to be the Messiah. And then Jesus explains to them, he says, Elijah has indeed come, and he was actually making reference of John the Baptist, that he had come in the spirit of Elijah. But it's also believed, once again, that he will come. And if you look in the book of Revelation, when we get there again, as we work our way through the New Testament and through the Bible, we will see that there are two witnesses. And the two witnesses, it doesn't give us their name. But one of the things that we know about Elijah at the end of his life, spoiler alert, is that he doesn't die. He is taken up into heaven in this chariot of fire that just comes low, swing low, swing chair, picks him up, takes him off, and he doesn't die. What does the scripture say about dying? It's appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. Elijah is one of those people that never dies, at least the first time that he was on this planet. But in the book of Revelation, remember that period of time in which these two witnesses are able to perform the miraculous. The Antichrist has no power over these two guys. And they are able to do 
certain miracles. And if you look at the miracles that these two witnesses perform, and, and there's a lot of speculation of who these two witnesses are, because their identity is not told us in the book of Revelation, but I believe it's two people, the two prophets that I've already mentioned. I believe it's Moses and Elijah because of the miracles that they perform. They're able to call down fire from heaven. They're able to turn water into blood. I mean, just these different things. And again, too, when Jesus spoke with both Moses and Elijah, he spoke of his death and of his resurrection. And Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. Even though there have been prophets before Elijah, Elijah, because of his ministry, is going to represent the prophets and the books of the prophets, the major and minor prophets. So that's kind of just a little thumbnail sketch of Elijah, who he is, and we're going to see him prominently mentioned these next couple of chapters. And so the verse opens, the chapter opens in Luke chapter 17, verse 1 with, uh, you know, Elijah. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead. And just a little reminder again, too, when the children of Israel came into the land, there were two and a half tribes that settled on the east of the river Jordan, the tribe of Reuben the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Gilead was an area that was within that tribe of Gad. And it's also just pictured, many times pictured as a place that, again, because of its probably proximity to the River Jordan, and, and again, too, that it was just lush and green, and it's just this picture of, uh, of just a, you know, a great place. And again, too, healing. The balm of Gilead just speaks of healing and speaks of, you know, it's just a, a place that, again, too, has a great reputation, and that's where Elijah's from. He was of the inhabitants of Gilead, and he said unto Ahab, again, we saw previously who Ahab is, who his wife is, Jezebel, so I'm not going to backtrack at all. But Elijah's now addressing the king of the northern tribes of Israel, Ahab, and he says there in verse 1, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. These years, it's not going to rain. And we know from the book of James how long this period of time is. In the book of James chapter 5, I mean, and, and this is in verse 17, and it's actually an encouragement to prayer. Sometimes we think, well, who am I to pray? Why would God answer my prayers? And James holds up Elijah as an example of a person that God answers his prayers. And again, too, he doesn't put Elijah on this particular platform that sometimes we do, but he just simply describes Elijah as a man of like passions. He was just like you, he was just like me, and yet God used him mightily. And it says in James chapter 5, verse 17, that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months for three and a half years. This is significant too because it ties in in the book of Revelation, ties in with the seven years of tribulation and that for three and a half years, Elijah and Moses, if they are indeed the two witnesses that are mentioned there, have this ability, this power to perform the miraculous again with the desire to draw people into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ because the church is now absent. The church has been raptured. 
So uh, back to our chapter in chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah's letting Ahab know. This is a judgment. This is a judgment for the wickedness of Ahab. This is a judgment for Israel, the, the ten tribes worshiping false gods, and now the time of God's judgment has come. And it says in verse 2 that the word of the Lord came unto him saying, now this is to Elijah, okay, now you've pronounced that it's not going to rain for years. Now this is God telling him how to survive this. Because again, the prophet's going to have to go through the same drought that everybody else is going to go through. The prophet is going to have to rely upon God, sustaining him during this period as everything dries out. The crops, there are, are going to be no crops as a result and people will die in mass because of this judgment of God. And it says in verse 2 that the word of the Lord came unto him saying, Get thee hence and turn thee eastward and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So God is going to use a little bit of his creation to sustain Elijah during this. He's going to drink water from the brook, but he's going to use an unclean bird, at least according to the scripture, to sustain Elijah during this time, to feed him. And it says in verse 5 that he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and he dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread. Where did the ravens get bread? You know, you're probably making some bread and you set it to cool and you go to tend to something else. What happened to that loaf of bread I just had here? The ravens are picking it up when you're not looking and they're carrying it off to Elijah. But it says that they brought him bread and it says they also brought him flesh in the morning. And it says in verse 6, bread and flesh in the evening and he drank of the brook. So they're in all likelihood, when it mentions flesh, in all like you know, they're 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 actually finding, you know, dead animals and bringing pieces of meat. It's interesting because, you know, you could look at this and say this is a violation of some of the dietary laws that God had commanded His people. But this is also to life and death, and this is also to you know, the, when Jesus and his disciples were confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees about eating on the Sabbath, Jesus pointed out that the, the law was, was made for man and not man for the law. And so God is going to, again, to sustain him through this process. I'm sure, too, that once he gets the flesh from these, you know, from the ravens, he cooks it up on a, on a fire or something like that. But there's going to come a time where even this provision is going to come to an end. It doesn't tell us how long this is going on, but again, without any rain, eventually everything dries up, including the brooks and the rivers and the different things that run into the River Jordan. And it says in verse 7 that it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up and became, and because there, was no, there had been no rain in the land. And in verse 8 it says, And the word of the Lord came unto, unto him, saying, Arise, and get thee to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman. I always think of Elmer Fudd when I see that. A widow woman 
I've commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. It is funny. You can laugh. And so Elijah goes from, you know, inland to the, where, the area of the Jordan. And he is going to, and again, if you've been to Israel, it's not, you know, it's probably a two to three day journey walking from where he has to go. But it really is on opposite borders of the land. But the other thing is, is the area that he's going to isn't even in Israel. It's part of Tyre and of Sidon. It's on the south side of Sidon. It's kind of part of the, the, the Phoenician area. And really interesting because it's actually part of where Jezebel comes from. So he's basically going to this non-Jewish area and yet the Lord is commanding this widow woman to take care of her, to sustain him. And we're going to see this widow woman doesn't even realize that God has appointed her to take care of this particular prophet. But again, too, the benefit is to this woman. You may think the benefit's to Elijah, but again, because the Lord has appointed this widow woman to take care of Elijah, she is going to benefit because she has nothing. When we you know, get to the, this right in the very next verse, she's basically ready to eat her last meal with her son and basically call it, that's it, you know, this is all we have and, and we're going to starve to death like everybody else. And so it says there in verse 10, so he arose and went to Zarephath. And it says, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there. The widow woman, I came home to my widow, to the, to the little woman, sorry, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. I'm sorry. Yeah. Make sure I'm at the right place here. Uh, she was there gathering uh, of sticks, and he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her. <laughs> Again, this is like asking somebody to do something for you. Could you give me a glass of water? And, and while you're at it, could you... Bring me some food too, you know. Ask for, he didn't ask for the food first. He asked for the water because the water is easy. But then he asked for the food because that is not that easy. But he says, fetch me a little water that I may drink. And as she was going, he called to her and said, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. Verse 12, and she said, as the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go. I like the old King James because, you know, and again, too, you could probably translate it a couple of sticks, but it literally the word is two. <laughs> and I don't know, again, too, if she's saying that for, you know, again, too, for kind of the, the dramatics of it. You know, I'm just getting two little sticks so I can make a little fire and, and make a meal out of this and die. I, I think, what does it say in the NIV? Um, uh, verse 12, I'm gathering a few sticks, so it doesn't say two, but the word in the Hebrew literally is two. And she says, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get two sticks that I may, and again, two, maybe the two represents her and her son. Maybe that's why she uses that particular number, that I might go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat and die. I mean, she points out how they have been affected by the drought, by the lack of water, by this judgment of God that not only has affected 
Israel, but it has affected the surrounding areas as well. And it also makes me think of what the Bible says about the righteous. You know, we aren't always immune from the hand or the chastening of God. Sometimes we think we are. The difference is, is that when God chastens us, it's for the purpose of bringing about correction and bringing about repentance and bringing us back into a place of righteousness. But I think sometimes we think we're immune from that. And the thing that the Bible actually says is that if the righteous scarcely are saved, where do you think the wicked are going to be when it comes to the time of God's judgment? And so they're suffering as well. She points out, this is all I have. I really can't bring you anything because this is all I have. And my son and I were just going to literally have our last meal with this little bit of flour that I have left and this little bit of oil that I've got. I was just going to make myself a little something, and then that was it. Verse 13, it says, Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. This is going to be God's supernatural way of providing. This barrel that she has this little bit of flour or meal in, and this cruise that she has this little bit of oil in, every time she goes there, there is always going to be flour and there is always going to be oil. And she can go there twice a day and make some bread or some cakes for them. And it's always going to be there. It is a promise that God gives through the prophet to sustain the prophet, to sustain this woman and her son during this time of judgment. You know, God always has a way of taking care of his own. David in the Psalms says, I'm a, an old man, but I've been a young man. And he reflects back on his life and he says, And I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. God has a way of taking care of you. I mean, sometimes we worry about those things. Jesus, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, or you know, he, he talks about, again, too, why do we worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to be clothed in? I mean, again, too, and he's talking about this unreasonable worry or fear. You know, yes, it's good to make plans and, okay, go to the grocery store, you know, budget things out. But at the same time, we shouldn't be overly worried or concerned because we think we're going to go without. And he points out, he says examples. He says, you know, uh, the lilies of the field, they don't toil or spin. They don't try very hard. And yet he says Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. And he talks about the birds, how God takes care of them as well. They don't worry about where their next meal is going to come from, but God provides for them. And he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I mean, there is a, a seeking of God first. Now, again, too, sometimes there are Christians that think, well, I don't have to work, I don't have to do anything. And again, too, the scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't say you shouldn't work or worry, you know, I mean, or you shouldn't do anything. Matter of fact, 
Paul addresses this problem in the New Testament when there were, there were those that were depending upon the church to feed them. And Paul has to write in one of his epistles, hey, you know, if a person doesn't work, then he shouldn't eat. You know, there's a responsibility that we have as well. But at the same time, when we're doing what we're supposed to do, God's going to always do and take care of us as well. And we needn't worry regardless of the circumstance. God is doing something miraculous. It reminds me again, too, of those period of years, those 40 years in which the children of Israel would go out, and they're out in the wilderness, and yet God is feeding 2.5 million people every day by them going out and gathering the manna. In the morning, they would gather it. They had to do it before the sun came up. They also, too, were appointed a certain portion. They couldn't gather more. Again, if they're thinking, well, I'll hoard it. I'll gather some extra food in case, you know, I don't feel like getting up tomorrow early and getting it before the sun comes up. I want to sleep in, so I get twice as much. You couldn't do that. If you, if you kept it, it would stink and breed, it would breed worms and it would stink. It was something that they had to do every day. Again, too interesting because, again, the prophet doesn't say, you know what, go to the barrel, and, you know, the barrel's going to be filled there, and it's going to have enough flour and meal to last us for the next six months or the next year. The same thing with the oil. You know, God's going to make this big, huge, monstrous flask of oil with a spigot, and there's going to be enough oil there that's going to last us for years. He doesn't, do, he doesn't say that. God doesn't give her or Elijah all this provision so that they could be sustained during the length of this drought. God wants them to go on a daily basis and see how God is going to provide for them. So that there is a dependence upon God daily. That was the lesson, too, of the manna in the wilderness. God was wanting a daily dependence upon him, a daily even obedience. He even points out, I think it's in Exodus chapter, um, I think it's chapter 12, but you have to look right in that ballpark. But he basically says, I'm going to do this to see whether or not my people are going to obey me, follow my commands. And, and, don't, and again, too, you know the first time that they go out or the first couple of times they go out, they gather more than they needed and then it stinks. And then you know they're commanded not to go out on a particular day. When? On the Sabbath. The only day they could gather more was the day before the Sabbath because God wanted them to rest on the Sabbath. And then on the Sabbath, there were those that were just going out to check. Well, okay, we're not supposed to gather any, but maybe let's see if there's manna out here every day. And God is angry that they disobey that command. I mean, there's a, a desire on God's part, not only for us to be dependent upon Him on a daily basis, but again, too, you know, it's all tied into a, a relationship with Him. I think it's no mistake that these two things, the, 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 the meal which is used to make the bread and the oil, that's a part of it. I, again, for me, I look at these things, and, I, and even when Jesus talks about the manna that the children of Israel went out and gathered, he points out that he, Jesus himself, is that bread that came down from heaven. I mean, it's a picture for me of, of, of relationship with Jesus and of the oil of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And during this period of time, they're going to have enough each and every day. 
And it says in verse 15 that she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. She and he and her house did eat many days. Verse 16, And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Elijah. Verse 17, And it came to pass after these things. So, some time has gone by. And Elijah, probably during this time too, he's developed a, an appreciation for what this woman has done in him staying with her and her son. I believe he had like a, a loft or a room which is mentioned uh, in verse 19. So again too, like Elisha, as he travels through the area of Shunem, this wealthy woman of Shunammite actually has this room set up for Elisha and for Gehazi as they would travel through the area. She would care for them, had this bed and a little night chair and a stand. And, and again, to any time he was traveling through the area, he knew he could stay there. So as the story unfolds after a period of time, it says that it came to pass, verse 17, after these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Verse 18 in the NIV, it says, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? We're going to see how this is something that probably even Elijah wasn't prepared for because of his prayer to God and is asking God the same question if this is a judgment of him. Now, sometimes, again, I already mentioned the passage in Hebrews that it's appointed unto men once to die, then the judgment. Remember when Jesus' disciples see this blind man sitting on the side of the road and they asked the question because it, it, it was a belief that they have. And sometimes it's a belief that we sometimes carry. At times it's an unreasonable belief. But Jesus' disciples see this blind guy and they ask him, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' answer was neither, but that God might be glorified. You know, sickness, affliction, even death, they're not always attributable to a particular person's sin. Sometimes we just die because it's our appointment. It's the time that God has appointed for us. I mean, but there are those, I mean, again, too, I, I, that's not to say God never does that because, again, when Paul is instructing the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians, about the importance of taking communion in a worthy way or worthy manner. He says, there are some, he says, examine your heart because he says there are some that have taken communion in an unworthy way and as a result of their lack of reverence or respect for the communion elements and also to the way in which they were doing it and they're despising the poor that were within the church. He said some are sick and even some have died as a result. Again, too, you can't discount that, that, Again, God at times uses sickness 
or even death as a measure or means of judgment. But immediately this woman goes there because she thinks or feels some element or measure of guilt. She is thinking that maybe because her son's death is a result of her own sin. You know, in a way, it's sad. I admire the humility, but at the same time, you know, the, the Bible says that God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. I think that this woman has witnessed, and the fact that God has chosen her to sustain Elijah demonstrates God's favor for this woman. I think sometimes the enemy comes in and he makes accusations against us. He reminds us of our sins. And he tries to bring us under condemnation. And I'm not sure that maybe this woman is feeling that condemnation instead of just recognizing, okay, I haven't done anything particularly wrong or sinful that would merit the death of my son. But that's the way the enemy comes in. He comes in and he's just trying to heap upon her guilt in addition to the grief that she is going through. And Elijah responds in verse 19. And actually, you know, I, I, I didn't make this point. Maybe I don't, I, I don't like backtracking, but I just simply make one other point about her making this cake for Elijah first and then making food for her and her son. To me, it is a, a picture of putting God first. I mean, Elijah is this man that God is using and if she can trust to take what little bit that she has left and make it for this man that God is going to use to bring, hopefully speak his word, but try to bring his nation to repentance. In a sense, she's giving to God first before her own needs. Again, it reminds me of the widow that Jesus' disciples, they see, you know, casting in their... The, the rich and the wealthy casting in their offerings at the temple and Jesus and his disciples admire the temple, Herod's temple. And yet Jesus points out, singles this one particular widow who is putting in just a couple of pennies, two mites, the scripture says. And Jesus admires her because she, he says, she's given more than all of they. I mean, they might be rich and they might be putting in thousands or ten thousands or whatever, but they have an abundance. They can afford to do that. And Jesus points out that this particular woman who's giving to God, that's all she has, and yet she's giving it to God because she loves God and she trusts Him. And in the same way, this woman is asked to trust God in giving this cake, make a cake, a little piece of bread, first for the prophet, and then from that point on, God is going to give back to her in the form of this flower and the form of this oil, always sustaining her and her son. So now getting back to her son and getting back to his death and, and getting back then to asking the question, you know, have you come to call my sins to remembrance and to slay my son? Verse 19, Elijah said unto her, give me thy son. 
And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, hast thou brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? I mean, Elijah wants to be clear too. Is this a judgment, God? Have you brought this evil upon her son? And in verse 21, it says that he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. This is power, but it's not Elijah's power. This is Elijah asking for God's power to be shown to this woman and to her child, although I'm sure that the child is in the presence of the Lord and rejoicing. He's just like, no, got to go back, clean up my room, brush my teeth, do what my mom says. Can't I just stay here, Lord? But again, too, it's a mercy that God shows to the widow. It is a great testimony of how God answers prayer. And again, to why Elijah is recognized as one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. His soul comes back. And in verse 22, it says that the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. And the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. The signs and the wonders confirm the word of God. God uses the miraculous to confirm His Word. But even if He wouldn't have answered that prayer, it doesn't change the power of the authority of God's Word and the importance of obedience to the Word of God. The other thing again, too, and, and for me, these are just the kind of details that I notice and maybe even nitpick about. Because again, this woman has seen God already working in the miraculous way, but this is now something that is personal. You know, again, too, she has seen God sustain her and her son for however period of time that Elijah's been there with the flour and with the oil. Matter of fact, you think about it, when Elijah shows up, she is ready to die. She has resigned herself that both her and her son are going to die, and she, in a sense, has accepted that particular fact but now that they have lived and God has sustained them during this period of time we don't know how long it is and she has this hope and and, and now that her son is gone it's not that easy for her to let go of her son now that she has enjoyed him and wasn't expecting to have to give him up and again, too, God's word was true even before Elijah raised her son from the dead. But again, with all of this, it just 
you know, it, it demonstrates the authority of the Word of God. And by this, again, too, you know, she says, I know you're a man of God, and I know that the, you know, the Word of the Lord in your mouth is true. God is always speaking truth. You want to go, you want to look for truth, look for it in God's Word. Pilate, Pilate asked that question of Jesus, you know, as he is brought before Jesus and is, in a sense, being questioned by Pilate. You know, basically, you know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, I've come to bear witness to the truth. I'm sorry, is what Jesus says. And then Pilate asks the question, well, what's truth? I mean, sometimes people have this, you know, well, you, know, you can't. Truth is a matter of perspective. Well, you know what? The important truth and the important perspective is God's perspective. You want to know what truth is? Go to God's Word, find His Word, read His Word, understand His Word, and know that His Word is true. And live your life by that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank You for this time. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the, the flour or the meal that doesn't fail and for the oil that never runs dry in our lives. Lord, the working of Your Word, the working of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, just to, again, too, thank You for the reminder that You want to meet with us each and every day depend upon you and to know, Lord, that your word is true. Lord, give us a, a hunger for your word. Lord, help us to, to, to read your word each and every day, but not only read it, Lord, but to obey it. And Lord, to know how your Holy Spirit is leading us. Lord, I pray for your people and maybe there's some that are even wondering or questioning or they're needing to make a decision and they're needing some wisdom. Your word says that if any lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and abradeth not. You don't rebuke us, Lord, for asking, but you also tell us, Lord, that when we ask that we're to be obedient, we're to, to obey, Lord, what you direct us by faith, that we're not to be double-minded, we're not to go back and forth or to vacillate. So, Lord, I, I just pray for your people. I pray, God, that you'd speak to them, speak to whoever might need some direction. Give them the wisdom of your word and confirm it, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. But, Lord, help them just trust you and to step out in faith and to put you first, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We rejoice, Lord, in you. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.